The biggest problem facing humanity is that the creator of the universe has justly sentenced every one of us to condemnation because we've committed treason against Him. We've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the worship of created things. None of us is righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are by nature children of wrath who suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. And the evils we've done are not the breaking of some culturally constructed morality. They're not even the breaking of some divine code of ethic. They are interpersonal. We compulsively rebel against the person who made us and loves us. Our transgressions of the law are personal. They're committed against the person we were created to love. And what makes our sin so damnable is that we love it so. We take great pleasure in it, and we approve of others who do it. The entire creation has been subjected to futility and groans under its bondage to corruption because of what humanity brought into the world. It was through humanity's sin that death entered the world. The book of nature, the human conscience, and the Word of God make all of this clear so that mankind is without excuse and so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become accountable to God. Consequently, a great and terrible day of judgment is coming on the whole world. The Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus. They will suffer punishment, the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. And so I say with as much sorrow as I can feel from God's Word that the biggest problem facing humanity is that the Creator of the universe has justly sentenced, appropriately sentenced, all of us to everlasting condemnation because we've given our allegiance and our love to other things and not to Him. And all of us are lost and ruined. It's from our rebellion and God's appropriate anger at it that all the miseries of this world follow. Which means, if there was a solution to God's anger, if there was a way to, to turn, against, tur turn around His just anger against us, that solution would be relevant to every culture and every people group and every person in the world. And it would also mean that if you embraced the solution for yourself, and if you celebrated it and, and tried to influence your family and your friends with it, you would not have wasted your life. You would have actually participated in the greatest cause in the universe. You would not have wasted your life uh, if you won't waste your life if you show other people the solution to their greatest problem. And the gloriously joyful reality for us today is that we know the solution, right? We know God has acted through Jesus in order to bring about a solution. And that solution is the justification of the ungodly through faith alone in Christ Jesus. Let's look at that solution together in Romans chapter 3. Please turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 3, verse 19. We're in Romans. I'm taking us to Romans today because today is Reformation Sunday. Uh, many evangelical churches are commemorating the Protestant Reformation today, and I believe that it's healthy for us to join in that celebration because at its heart and soul, the Protestant Reformation was a controversy over how to address mankind's biggest problem and where the answer for overcoming that problem was to be found. I want to show you the Apostle Paul's 
answer to the problem from Romans 3, 19 and following. Let's read the text together. Starting in Romans 3, verse 19, Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in His sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over sins previously committed, for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Up to this point in his letter to the church in Rome, Paul has been uh, at pains to show how the whole world, Jews and Gentiles alike, are all condemned and guilty before God. They, they, they bear, whether they feel it or not, they bear objective guilt before God's law. And after demonstrating mankind's objective guilt at length, Paul then brings the first portion of his letter to the church in Rome to a conclusion by saying the following, Romans 3, 19 and 20, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. But why? Why won't keeping the law take God's anger at me away from me? Why, why, why can't I justify myself through the keeping of His law? Well, because that's not the purpose of the law. Look again at the end of verse 20. For through the law becomes the knowledge of sin. The purpose of God's law is to make us aware of our sin and our need for a Savior. Now, after we come to the Savior, the law becomes uh, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It becomes a guide for us. It does that. But before we come to the Savior, the purpose of the law is to make us aware of our sin. Paul tells the Galatians that the law of God is our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So, God didn't give us the law to use as a tool to help us earn our own salvation. He gave the law to bring conviction. He gave the law to break our seemingly impregnable sense of self-righteousness, our, our seemingly impregnable sense of our own moral virtue. The law is like a hammer God uses with which to break the presumption of personal righteousness that people like to cling to. And after establishing that fact, Paul then turns to speak about this magnificent truth starting in verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now, in context, the righteousness of God that Paul's talking about here is not the righteousness of God whereby as the just judge of the cosmos, he rightly, appropriately punishes people who do evil. That's not the righteousness that Paul's talking about here, even though God is righteous in that way. He's talking about the righteousness of God 
whereby God pardons sinners who are guilty, but He pardons them because their penalty has already been paid in Christ. It's the righteousness of God whereby He can righteously forgive while not denying the truth about our wickedness and while not leaving it unpunished. That's the idea of the righteousness that He's speaking of. That righteousness of God whereby He pardons sinners, verse 21, has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. There's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles in this matter. All of us fall short of the glory of God, and all of us who come to Christ are justified by the work of Christ on our behalf. This righteousness that we uh, procure through Christ's sacrifice for us, we need it because, verse 23, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we capture a glimpse of how the righteousness that Christ provides for us is uh, given to us, verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The key words in that verse, verse 24, are grace and redemption. So, this gift is a gift of God's grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't achieve it on our own. We don't deserve it. God's not under any kind of obligation to give us this gift. It was a gift that was purchased at a high price through the blood of Christ. And Paul uses the word redemption. That word redemption takes us into the ancient slave market And the idea there is that Christ bought us back from our slavery to sin by His own blood so that we could be servants of righteousness. Uh, The price He paid, verse 25, was God displaying Him publicly as a propitiation in His blood. That word propitiation, it takes us from the slave market now to the sacrificial system. A propitiation in a sacrificial system is anything that satisfies God's just anger. Our sin earned us a cup of God's wrath, and a propitiation is like a sponge that absorbs the contents of that cup so that we don't have to drink it. And why did God send His own Son to be that propitiation that absorbs His just wrath? Middle of verse 25, to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be both just, right, because He he punishes the sin, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. By sending His own Son as a sacrifice for our sins, God is both just because He punishes the sin, but He also becomes a righteous justifier of those who are ungodly but place their faith in Jesus. But just because Jesus has done these things for us, it doesn't mean that we automatically receive the benefits. Uh, How is it that we appropriate the benefits of this redemption? Verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 25, through faith. Verse 26, the one who has faith in Jesus receives the benefits. It is through faith, not verse 20, through law-keeping. Now, this is not a new theme in Scripture. This has come up before in Scripture. For instance, Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, credited to him as righteousness. In Habakkuk 2, we learn, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. In Galatians 2, Paul sums it up this way, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. The author of Hebrews teaches us, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, if this is the way of salvation then, 
if, if this is the way God has designed our deliverance through Christ, then Paul brings up an interesting question in verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. The law of faith excludes all bragging rights. Uh, we earn nothing. We deserve nothing. God pronounces us innocent only as an undeserved gift of His grace uh, because of what His Son purchased for us. And then here's where we get the idea of justification by faith alone. It's in many passages, but particularly Romans 3, verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It is apart from excluding all works of the law that we are saved. It is by faith alone. The Latin phrase that the Reformers used uh, to uh, name this doctrine was the doctrine of sola fide, faith alone justifies us. Now, allow me to go on a little excursus about what this justification is. What is justification? Turn over in your Bible to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. By this point in the letter, Paul has completed telling the Romans about the plan of salvation, about the gospel, and after having given them the gospel, he says in Romans 8, 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, those are stunning words. According to the Apostle Paul, the redemption Christ bought for us absorbed God's anger on the cross, and it didn't just make God neutral towards us, it made God uh, for us. He's no longer against us in just anger. He's no longer our judge. He's become our loving Heavenly Father. God being for us then means that all of His infinite power, all of His stunning wisdom, all of His goodness are for us unceasingly forever. God is now for our holiness and our happiness. He is for our goodness and our gladness. He is for our purity and our pleasure. That the all-powerful creator of the universe is for you is good news beyond our wildest imaginations. And Paul draws two conclusions from it. First of all, into verse 31, who can be against us? And the implied answer is no one. But we need to talk about that because I have a bit of a problem. Uh, I, one time, well, this isn't in my notes, but I'll say it. Uh, one time in California, when I lived in California, I was talking with a man who was an observant, uh, observant Jew, and he said, you know, Chris, uh, you Christians, you read your Bibles to know God, but we Jews, we like to read our Bibles to argue with God. And when you actually think about the prophets and the psalmist, the, there is some arguing with God. I mean, it's, it's not disrespectful. It's not running away from Him in anger. It's not shaking the fist at Him and slandering it. It's not that. But there is some arguing with God. There is some asking tough questions that you find, for instance, in Psalm 73 or Habakkuk. All of Habakkuk is basically Habakkuk arguing with God about His plan for how to discipline His people, right? And so, there, there is a sense in which uh, my, my, friend, my friend had a point. And I have a bad habit I, I, I argue. I argue with the text. So, when I hear Paul say, who can be against us, implied answer, no one, I should be rejoicing. I should be comforted. But I argue. And I say in my heart, well, Paul, it sure feels like people can be against us. 
There are Christians who are imprisoned and killed in some communist and Muslim countries today. It sure feels like people can be against us. And Paul acknowledges that people can be against us. Down in verse 36 of the passage, he says uh, to, the God, to the Lord, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are as sheep to be slaughtered. So, what does Paul mean then when he says, who can be against us? What I take him to mean is this, that what our enemies intend against us for evil, God can use for good. Even when they slaughter you like sheep, they serve you because you will receive a better resurrection. You will receive a better resurrection and more heavenly reward for having been faithful to Christ to the end, even in the face of the threat of death. What this means then is no one can ruin you. No one can destroy your eternally conscious, ever-living soul. Nobody can ruin you. Nobody can destroy you because God is for you. The second proof that God really is for us, or really the, the proof that He's for us, comes in verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? As a result, verse 31, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Again, the implied answer is no one, but if we argued with Paul, we could say things like, well, okay, Paul, but Jesus Himself died under false charges. Uh, That's later on going to happen to the Apostle Paul himself. Uh, The Christian faith is spoken against everywhere. Satan accuses us. Our enemies slander us. So, what do you mean that no one can bring a charge against God's elect? And again, I believe that what Paul is saying in context and interpreted with the rest of Scripture means this. No charge against God's elect will stick, not one. Why not? Because, end of verse 33, it's God who justifies. If the just judge of the universe, if the supreme court of the universe says we're not guilty, all the charges that other people can bring won't stick. And there's that word again, justifies. It, verse 33, it is God who justifies. What do we mean by justification? Well, as I said before, redemption takes us to the language of the slave market and being brought, bought back out of slavery. Propitiation takes us into the language of the sacrificial system. But now, justification takes us into the language of the courtroom. So, the scene is of a courtroom in heaven. You're the defendant. You are, pardon the expression, guilty as sin. You're, you're, you're guilty. And there's a prosecuting attorney. And you're like, you're starting to sink in your seat because everything the prosecuting attorney says is true. It's factual. No elaboration, no exaggeration, no, uh, it, no embellishment. Everything the prosecuting attorney is saying about you, you did. And some of it you forgot about, right? And now you're like, oh my goodness, I forgot about that one too. And, and you're sitting there, and you are guilty as charged. This is bad news for you. But the judge is God Himself, And over and over and over and over again, when the true, factual, legitimate charges against you are brought up, He overrules them and declares you not guilty. Now, how can He do that? If He loves truth, how how can He declare you not guilty? If He's just, how can He declare you not guilty when you've done evil? Well, verse 34, God can do that because 
Christ Jesus is He who died, and His death is explained earlier in, in the chapter, chapter 8, verse 3, this way. For we, uh, we know that what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The, the, the requirement of the law for us to be punished was fulfilled in Christ already at the cross. And so, the foundation of us being declared not guilty, not lawbreakers, or biblically speaking, the idea of justification, it also means we're declared righteous. The foundation of us being declared righteous in God's courtroom is the death of Christ. It follows then, verse 35, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ forever. This is the great reversal of God's anger against us. So, I ask again, how do we get into a position where we can reverse God's just anger at our sin? How can we get in a position where no accusation sticks, where there's no more condemnation, where nothing can separate us from the love of God? The answer, according to the New Testament, is by faith alone. We believe the fact that we're justified by faith alone is made clear in Romans 3, verse 28. We, we just read that a couple minutes ago. We could go to other passages, like Galatians 2, 21, where Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died needlessly. Think about that. I, mean, I think that's clear enough, but just think about uh, if we could do it ourselves through keeping the law, what's the whole point of the exercise where Jesus goes to the cross? What does that accomplish? What does that do if we can earn our salvation ourselves? It, it, it makes no sense. Um, so, I think that biblically speaking, this doctrine of justification by faith alone, it's pretty clear. But I can still hear the objection, well, maybe what Paul means is that we're saved primarily or mainly through faith, but we also have to do a little bit of law-keeping, right? Maybe, maybe the equation is we're saved by faith, all capital letters, 24-point font, but it's faith plus just, just a little bit of works, 10-point font, lowercase. Maybe that's the equation. Maybe we're saved by faith, plus just like one little work that, that shows where our faith is genuine. Maybe it's faith plus one little work like circumcision. And Paul gives a radical answer to that issue that settles it in Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. And I believe it doesn't just settle the issue of faith plus circumcision. It settles the entire issue of faith plus any works. In Galatians 5.2, Paul says it this way, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again that every man who receives circumcision, that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. In other words, if you choose to rely on just a little bit of law-keeping, even one act like circumcision as a way of becoming justified by God, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And that's because there's only two ways of justification. There is law-keeping, which requires your perfection, and then there is faith, which depends on Christ's perfection. These are the two pathways. And attempting to be reconciled to God any other way uh, doesn't work. These, these two ways can't be mixed. It's either one or the other. And so, here at Grace Fellowship Church, we believe, based on Romans 3 and Galatians 5, and when we were back in Ephesians chapter 2, we believe that God has declared those who follow Christ righteous by His grace alone, through faith alone, 
in Christ alone. That means that we reject any teaching which claims we can be reconciled to God through faith plus keeping the good works of the law. We also reject uh, teaching that claims that we could be saved just through good works on our own. Uh, so, let me apply this for a moment. We reject a teaching that claims you can be saved by faith plus works, like faith plus circumcision, or faith plus the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. We have the solution to the world's biggest problem, and, and the clarification that it comes by faith alone, that's important for us getting the message right. This is not like sm some kind of small matter, some footnote in a theological debate of uh, questionable relevance. And what it means is that we're opposed to any form of work salvation that panders. Just stop and think about what is the problem with work salvation? The problem is it panders to a person's sense of self-righteousness instead of crushing it. We are already prone to want self-atoning, self-justifying, self-salvation plans, uh, whether they come to us from the Judaizers that Paul dealt with in Galatians 5, or from the Roman Catholic Church, or in our day from the secular therapeutic system, uh, or from any other source. We are justified by faith alone. But having established that, I would be negligent in my pastoral duty if I failed to remind you that the faith alone which justifies us never remains alone. A genuine faith actually produces some good works. A saving faith is a changing faith. You see, every true doctrine can be either counterfeited or twisted and used for evil purposes. And this doctrine of justification by faith alone is no exception. In the early church, there were people who treated this doctrine of uh, faith alone that saves as a doctrine that you could claim that you had a faith that produced zero good works. And the Apostle James deals with that in his letter to the churches. He said no to such faith because a faith which doesn't result in righteous living is less than New Testament faith and less than saving. James said it this way, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. It's like a body without the breath of life or like a kind of so-called energy, but that doesn't produce any effects. If a person is, uh, has genuine faith, it will be accompanied by some good works. That's why James says, chapter 2, verse 18, I will show you my faith by my works. The faith alone which justifies is never alone. It always yields some transforming fruit. This is why James says uh, these controversial words in his letter, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, if you just take that out of context at face value, what I just quoted, it would sound like James is arguing with the Apostle Paul and it contradicts everything I just said about being justified by faith alone. But if you go back and you read the letter, what James is dealing with here is he's dealing with people who claim they had faith, uh, but they, they, they had no good works at all. Uh, a man is not justified by a faith which is alone, but by a genuine faith alone that then shows itself, excuse me, shows itself with good works. So, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, yes, but a genuine faith is never alone. Uh, and you see this illustrated in people of faith in Scripture. By faith, Noah reverently built an ark for the salvation of his household in an era when nobody had even experienced a local flood. 
Uh, By faith, Abraham obeyed God and left his hometown to go to a land that God would show him. And when he left, he didn't even know where he was going. And, And he got to go on the city he was a part of. He had a house. He had a home. And he went on a permanent camping trip, not knowing where God would take him. Uh, but his faith produced works. By faith, Sarah received the ability to conceive even though she was well past the age of childbearing. Why? Because she considered him faithful who promised that she would have a son. The faith that is alive leads to obedience and fruit. So, this doctrine, doctrine of justification by faith alone, it should never be twisted to say that if you just say the right biblical words you can then go out, if, if you just give God some lip service and give Him some, some theologically correct words, you can then walk away, live like the devil, and then get into heaven. If you're still living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live, Romans 8, 13. Uh, pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. No holiness, no heaven. Why? because no holiness exposes counterfeit faith. Good works are necessary, not because they redeem us, but because they confirm that the faith we have is genuine and we're not just playing some kind of spiritual mind game. J.C. Ryle said it this way, sin forsaken is one of the best evidences of sin forgiven. We are justified by faith alone, but the faith alone which justifies us is never alone. It produces the fruit of righteous living." So, what shall we say to these things then, brothers and sisters? If we really believe in this doctrine of justification by faith alone, how should we apply it? I have just a couple thoughts this morning. Uh, First, we protest any system of self-salvation. Over 500 years later, we choose to be faithfully Protestant. We reject the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church that they've added to faith in their pseudo-gospel presentation. We stand with our theological forefathers and say that the Roman Catholic Church, even though it does say many things that are true, the gospel message it preaches adds up to a false gospel of faith plus works. And so, we pray for and share the gospel of justification by faith alone with our Catholic uh, family members and friends. But our protest of self-salvation schemes, it doesn't end with the Roman Catholic Church. We also reject contemporary self-help systems and the secular psychologies that teach people to look within for solutions when that's already the bent of human nature. It's curious. According to the secular psychologies, and I say that in plural because there's more than one school of psychology, and they debate with each other. According to the secular psychologies, you have no real responsibility for causing your problems. Your syndrome or disorder or disease was caused by genetics or hormones or how people treated you. You bear, according to them, because they are, when I say secular, they are truly committed secularists. They would say that you bear no objective guilt before a holy God. All you have are just guilt feelings, but there's nothing objective or real or solid or tangible behind those feelings. They're just feelings you need to get over. There is no objective guilt. Uh, You just suffer from guilt feelings in their system. And so, it's not your fault. You don't bear any objective guilt that you would need to have forgiveness for. And yet, at the same time, they turn around, and then they give you final responsibility for solving what's wrong. 
You can get a grip. You can make better choices. You can choose to heal. You can change your self-talk and have more reasonable expectations. The logic adds up like this. You're definitely not a sinner, but you definitely are your Savior. But God sees things the other way around. In God's economy, you definitely are a sinner, and you are certainly not your own Savior. So we reject most of what the secular psychologies offer because we need Jesus' help. Christ alone can heal. He's a sufficient Savior. His words are more than enough to confront our sins and to confront us and, and to comfort us and give us hope in the middle of our sufferings. And we have not only a sufficient Savior, we have a sufficient Bible that helps us with all of the soul problems we face. The Word of God is an ocean of help for all of our counseling needs, not a birdbath, not the birdbath that some Christians treat it like. Uh, it has everything we need, right? Paul, uh, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that through the true knowledge of Christ, we have everything necessary for life and godliness. We protest all systems of self-salvation, whether they're secular systems that say you don't even need salvation because you're not guilty at all, or whether they're religious systems like the Roman Catholic Church. Second, we believe that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is an important clarifying statement that helps us understand mankind's only solution to our biggest problem. We are not quibbling with Roman Catholics over an abstract religious issue here. We have been shown the solution to the world's biggest problem, and the cornerstone of that solution is being declared righteous and put in a position where God is 100% for us by faith alone. It is a position where no condemnation sticks, uh, where no condemnation holds, where no separation from God's love ever comes. It's through justification by faith alone that we've been reconciled to God, entered into paradise, and found joy. And so we savor this doctrine, and we show it to the world because we know that if we share this solution to the world, we will not have wasted our lives. We'll have participated in the most important cause in the cosmos. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank You that You sent Him to be a propitiation for our sins and that He's paid the penalty in full. Thank You that You are for all who bow the knee and come to Christ in faith. I pray that You would help us to understand these things, apply these things, Embrace these things and celebrate them together as a church family. In Jesus' name, amen.